Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux I said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, as always, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. How's it going tonight? I'm doing great. I'm better than I deserve. How about you? You know what? About the same. I uh, I just been having an fun getting into technology. You know, I was kind of in a slump where I wasn't doing anything interesting or exciting. And uh, I don't know, the last five or six days, I've kind of been interested in technology again. That's always nice to rediscover that that passion. You find, Does that come because of your job? Like, do you get like, it's like, oh man, I troubleshot and fix stuff all day long. Last thing I want to do is go read documentation and spin stuff up. Um, I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. I honestly think it has more to do with I'm I'm really motivated by the idea of like scratching that itch. And so if I don't have something, you know, like you and I have talked about time and time again, it, there has to be some tangible reason for me to go do something. Mm. It's always been that way. And so I think it's more to do with the fact that I have to have some reason to go do a thing. And if I don't, then I'm just partic- not particularly interested in spending my time. You need a carrot at the end of your stick. Yeah, sure. We'll call it that. 855-450. No, it's one 855 The email live at asknoahshow.com. You can write into the program. You can chat via the Geek Lab. You can give us a call. We'll answer your question live on the air. Speaking of the Geek Lab, this came up this week. So Matrix operates with Federation, right? So the idea being that you can have a server, I can have a server, and we can talk to each other through Federation. So we host a server on Linux Delta, and when it started, it was wide open to the public. Anybody could join. And as the uh, sole bearer of the DigitalOcean bill, that lasted a few months, and then we went, holy bananas, we got to cut down. So we we shut public registration off because uh, it the server was just getting overloaded. Now, we are, at this point, I think like three weeks, maybe four weeks into operation migrate to the data center and things are going splendidly so there is every possibility in the world in fact i would go as far as to say it's likely that we will reopen public registration on linux delta server if you don't have a matrix home server and you're looking for a home we might be able to house you in the not too distant future because we went from having to pay per gigabyte for every every picture you store we we had to, we had to pay for that and every picture that you view from another server we had to pay for that so we went from doing that in a data center to now we just have to throw drives in a ZFS pool and boom, all the storage in the world. So probably going to open that back up. In the meantime, if you want to participate in the Geek Lab, there's a couple ways to do so. You can go to, to geeklab.ninja and there you can see without creating an account, without doing anything, you'll be able to, to watch the chat. You'll be able to see what people are talking about. If you go over to minddripmedia.com, click on the live tab, it'll drop you into the live stream during the show. Again, no account creation necessary. You're able to participate in the show. It'll just assign you a randomly generated user. We take privacy seriously. We talk about it. And thus, we're not going to require you to give up any of your personal information to participate. So those are the ways that you can participate with us 
live. Now, if you want to have a persistent connection to the Geek Lab, a lot of people do. They'll troubleshoot their own problems or they kind of watch the geek conversation that goes on throughout the week. You can do that. You just have to create an account someplace like Matrix.org or another home server that allows for free public registration. And then you can join the Geek Lab and you can participate all day long. Steve, you want to get into some feedback? Let's do it. Our first email today comes in from Matt. Matt writes in and says, Hey, Noah and Steve, I coach a youth baseball team, and I would love to live stream our games and tournaments. Sometimes they're two hours away, so I want the family members that can't be at the games to still see the games. I was originally going to do this on YouTube. However, you have to have a 1,000 subscribers. The organization that we're affiliated with has multiple teams, so I can't use Facebook. I was trying to think of options that maybe even if I could self-host something, I could use that instead of trying to figure something out with the big tech companies. They're all a pain in the butt. I was originally going to try and use the Logitech Mevo or a cell phone that can be mounted to a backstop on a fence. Do you have any suggestions? Thanks for everything you and Steve do to help the community. Matt. So, Steve, as you listen through what Matt is asking, what comes top of mind if you were asked to stream a youth baseball game? Unless you're like, hey, you know what? I don't really do a whole, oh, his internet died. This is a first. All right. So here's what I would tell you, Matt. At Leighton Broadcasting, I have the opportunity to work with very talented broadcasters. One guy, and it is no exaggeration to say, he would be calling national games all over the country if only he didn't have an aversion to airplanes. But because he wants to drive everywhere, I think he largely chooses to, to, to stick around this area. He has recently gotten into video streaming, and they're doing that for a lot of high school uh, sports games. So they're dealing with a lot of the same challenges you are. You're driving a distance. You don't always have a predictable broadcast location because, like you say, you might be mounting a camera to a fence might be on the field. It might be up in a stand somewhere. Sometimes you're going to have wired internet. Sometimes it'll be wireless internet. Sometimes there'll be no internet at all. From that standpoint, what I would tell you is start. I would encourage you to bring everything to the place that you need to get out. So that would be a computer to run the stream on, a capture device, and an internet source. So it could be like a, a MiFi or a hotspot. Hardware is always best. If you can't, if there's hardware, sometimes you'll have hardwired in the school or somewhere nearby, but there isn't hardwired right where you are. In those cases, I might recommend that you check out the nano beams. Nano beams from Ubiquity, they're like 150 bucks each. And basically the way they work is you put one at inside of the school or inside of the place that has wired internet, and it will create a bi-directional gig link out to the out to the field. And the only real gotcha with them, they're extremely line of sight. So when I say line of sight, I don't mean like, oh, they're generally pointing in the direction. I can see it from here. No, I mean like they have to be exactly lined up. And there's a little utility in there that will allow you to do it, but you'd have to put some time into it ahead of time. Now, the second thing is, once you get that up and running, the next thing I would do is I would look for the actual end location. Where are you going to put it at? Which is kind of the, the heart of your question. So you ask about self-hosting. There are absolutely options to do that. 
one of which is owncast. Now, if you go to minddripmedia.com and click on the live tab at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, Central Time, you can watch us do the show live. However, consider this. I have, it has not been a flawless experience. Full disclosure, it could absolutely be a function of Noah doesn't really know what he's doing system administrative-wise. I might be missing something. So maybe you can figure that part of it out. But I feel like I've given Owncast a fairly large playground to live in. I have, it's being fed from our upstream provider scale engine. It is there only for the people that visit that portion of the site. You know, the, the stream out to all of the other places is all still being handled by scale engine, the CDN. And it's sitting on um, a machine uh, inside of a data center. So I feel like I've given it all of the resources that it should need, and I still struggle to keep it up all of the time. So we're going to continue to play with it and can continue to work it out. If you're willing to pay for a service that isn't one of the big name companies, I cannot recommend my friend Alan Jude and Scale Engine enough. They have been doing streaming for decades. And I've worked with Alan for a number of years. They're fantastic. I was talking in the pre-show today when we were going through your question. So Owncast, I'm learning the challenges of hosting your own RTMP service and, of course, making sure that it has sufficient resources and all of those kinds of things. And in that process, for the past few weeks, I've had issues every couple of weeks. Before that, when Scale Engine was just embedded onto our site, I went on the air April 4th, 2017, I've had exactly zero problems, zero problems with Scale Engine from the time we went onto the air until the time that I started mucking around with Owncast. So if you want the set it and forget it option, I don't have enough good things to say about Scale Engine. And on top of that, Alan supports what he calls Face Twitch Tube, which essentially means you can push one stream to Scale Engine over your limited internet connection, and they will then push back out to YouTube and Facebook and all of the other places. So if you ever get to a point where the school says, hey, Matt, can you connect us? And then we have a YouTube page. And could you just give us a stream? And we... Yep, no problem. Just give me the little key. I'll enter it into Scale Engine. We'll push a feed out to you. Well, how about Facebook? Can we get that too? Yep, no problem. I'm on Twitch. Yep, not a problem. And you, you're sending only one stream of data off of your mobile connection out to Scale Engine. They're going to handle putting it on all of the places. And this is the key thing that I tell churches. And I tell anybody that'll listen to me, host the stream on your page or at least have the viewer portion on your page. And the reason for that is you want to give people the lowest friction, the lowest barrier to entry to watch your stream. So if you have mattsgreatstream.com and that's where people go, today you're using Scale Engine. Tomorrow we all get owncast dialed in or somebody writes into the show and says, you idiot, no, here's how you fix it. And then I fix it and then it's great. We just pick Scale Engine up. Drop own cloud in, guess what? Or own cloud, own cast in, and guess what? Your viewers have absolutely no idea. They don't care. They just went to the same place, and now there's a different little box that they click on play. So if I would say that's where I would go for the endpoint. As far as equipment in the middle, this entirely depends on your budget. If you're looking for a shoestring budget, just get off the ground. You can't go wrong with a laptop and a C920. All day long, every day, that is going to be an absolutely rock-solid streaming rig for you. Now, it is nothing more than a camera on a stick. So you have to be comfortable with wiggling a camera on a stick and nothing more. 
once you want to get past that one camera uh, limitation or you want to start doing more, that's when I'm going to encourage you to go to SDI or PCI capture because that's going to allow you to get all of the necessary data onto the system bus, process it with these, get it out the door with these, no resetting cameras and inputs and all those things. You can set your scenes up and leave them go. And then for software, I'd use OBS. Now you mentioned the Mevo. I have to tell you, I have experience with the Mevo. I would run, not walk away from the Logitech Mevo. A couple of reasons, a couple of things I hate about it. So one thing is it requires you to use an app. So you have to download an app onto a device, which kind of defeats the entire purpose of having a dedicated camera device if you have to pair it to another uh, you know, computing device anyway. Well, why not just stream off of the computing device? And if it's a phone, it probably has a camera built into it anyway. So I, I really struggle with that aspect of it. Secondly, they have, the, they have like this little button that you can start and stop the stream. And in principle, it sounds like a great idea until you figure out if you're streaming to these pre-configured sources that they tell you to stream to, which is the big ones, right? YouTube, Facebook, those kinds of things. You have to preset that little, uh, the, the stream key up. And you know, at least on Facebook, that's going to change every time. So now that button becomes fairly useless because you got to open the app to update the key anyway. So I, I don't, I really, I've had a pretty abysmal experience with the Mevo. I would, I would I'd strongly encourage you to stay away from that. But I would suggest uh, taking a look at, uh, I would suggest taking a look at a C920 and taking a look at Scale Engine. Uh, for those things. The other option, video.ninja. So video.ninja, formerly uh, OBS uh, uh, Ninja, was or is a f- online platform for doing bi-directional quality video interaction. And so you can load a URL and you can join, then you can add those things directly into OBS. But that can be a really nice way to connect other people. Now, I don't know that it's necessarily designed does anybody in the mumble room, can you tell, can you guys tell me, is video.ninja designed for people to come and view things or is it really more designed to bring remote guests in? Because I, I was thinking it was. So, yeah, I've actually attended a few things via the video.ninja when it was OBS.ninja. And it was very much a, I'm going to stream things out to you guys. And everybody was able to just collect it that way. Um, the one thing that OBS is lacking is that sort of web connection for people to just consume it mm-hmm. and video ninja that can definitely be used that way. Okay. So there you go. You can check all of those options out. Scale engine, video ninja own cast. We'll have them all linked for you in the show notes, podcast dot com. Steve, did you refill your internet tokens? Yes, I did. Okay. Anything to add to streaming? Uh, no, I think you pretty much covered it. I would definitely look at scale engine. Just as a, a general rule of thumb, especially if you have some small budget, I'm a big fan of them. You you just say that because he's Canadian. Sure. We'll go with that. <laughs> I'm kidding. That was a joke. <laughs> okay. Our second email comes in from Tim. Tim writes in and says, hi, Noah. On a recent show, you mentioned favoring Ubuntu over Alma for ZFS file service due to the DKMS pain on Alma. I see people do both DKMS and KMOD setups on ZFS on Ubuntu and Alma. In your experience... What is the most rock-solid setup for ZFS? It sounds like it's based on Ubuntu, but is it KMON or DKMS-based for you? What repos or third-party canonical? Do you remove any other Ubuntu components? 
But our best practices are really appreciated. I'd like to have a setup that's very stable with an automatic weekly or at least monthly security patching enabled. I'm hoping to rebase on 2204-2304. Thanks for the awesome show. You and Steve both, both teach me new things every week. Tim in web. So a couple of things here. So th- this is, this has been my, my, uh, this has been my jam the past few weeks, to be honest with you. I had, so I, I, I talked a little bit last week about I had a failure and I was able to recover it for, from it. Preceding that, if you go back like six, eight months, I had started to think about how would I do these things with ZFS and how does ZFS work on Ubuntu? And so kind of like you, I was just kind of dipping my toes in. And previously I had used ZFS on Alma primarily because Everything else I did at work was based in Red Hat, so it's just kind of a natural, happy home for me. ZFS works, so I just kind of started there. But yes, DKMS is a pain. If it goes to update, you can get into some problems. So the way that Ubuntu does it is they they have their own kernel with ZFS baked in. So literally getting ZFS on Ubuntu is as simple as sudo apt install ZFS utils dash Linux. Now I'll have links for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. You can go check it out, and all of these commands will be here, but... I bought a little HP MicroLiant server. I'm actually going to be giving a, uh, a a talk about this at, at Ubuntu Summit in Latvia this year. So I, I, I bought this little HP ProLiant server, and I thought to myself, self, I wonder how much of my home, how much of my 42U rack inside of my home I could move onto this tiny little server that's the equivalent of four shoeboxes stacked up. So I bought some drives, and I shoved it in there, and I installed stock Ubuntu, and sudo apt install ZFS utils dash Linux. And all of a sudden, ZFS was working on Linux. That's it. And it, as far as I could tell, it's it's like it's on any other native file system. I created a ZFS pool. I mounted it. Pseudo ZFS mount. Created the pool. And had access to a whole bunch of storage. And I thought, well, gee, that was easier than I thought. So I installed the necessary packages to get libvirt up and running. And approximately, you know, 11 and a half minutes after the installation had completed of Ubuntu 2204, I had a ZFS file server underneath, Samba running to share those that data out in specific folders, a virtual host running on the same box, and the ability to slide VMs from my home over. So I thought, well, let's see how this works. So I started sliding all my VMs over, and Home Assistant came over, and Volumio came over, and all these things came over, and I thought... Well, this is absolutely fantastic. So the, 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 what I have kind of tweaked then from there, I started setting up the quote-unquote file server as just a VM that has access to the, the ZFS storage pool beneath it sitting on the host itself, um, which just allows me to do a little bit more in the way of I want to tweak who can get to what. But it is stupid simple to get ZFS up and running. And if last week is any... Uh, attestation to what I'm talking about here. I did everything wrong that one could do wrong other than I had my data in a number of places that it wasn't going to bite me and pulling drives out of a dead machine and plugging them into uh, another dock and running zpool import pulls all the, it just, it connects and all of a sudden all there's all the data right there on the drives. So I would tell you it's extraordinarily easy uh, to get up and running with Ubuntu. I highly recommend it. And what I would encourage you to do, Tim, is go find a spare box, or really a couple of spare drives, install ZFS Utils on your laptop or on your computer, plug a couple of spare drives into some sort of an enclosure or into some sort of a dock and plug it into your computer, 
go create a pool, throw a couple of text files on it, unmount and detach the pool, and then reconnect it and just watch how that process goes and step into it yourself and see what you think of that process. And then when you get comfortable with it, then the sky becomes the limit. But I, I would leave you with this piece of advice. If you don't take any of the rest of the advice I gave you, follow this one thing. Don't put your data anywhere that you don't understand. If you're not comfortable with it, don't do it. So play ZFS is great. The ZFS snapshots and the and ZFS send has reduced my backup process and being able to send data across the network. Uh, it, it, it turns into a fraction. So I don't have enough good things to say about it. But none of that matters if you're not comfortable with it. If you don't know what to do, don't step into something that you're not comfortable with because when a bad day comes and a bad day is coming, when a bad day comes, you want to know, not think, know that you got all your ducks in a row and you know exactly what you're going to do. Steve, anything, any thoughts on, on ZFS and, and Tim's question? So what I would do instead of getting spare drives, <clears throat> I would get, I would just spin up a VM. Anybody can do that. doesn't matter whether it's uh, VirtualBox or KVM or whatever you're comfortable with. doesn't really matter. Even Hyper-V, if you're running a Windows laptop, no judgment. Um, and attach a couple of virtual disks and do ZFS there. Then disconnect them and bring them into a different VM. And you can then simulate moving drives around and all that sort of stuff because you could literally make drives that are 100 megs big, right, to 100 meg drives. So it doesn't matter how big your laptop hard drive is, you should be able to have some space for that. And you get a chance to practice moving them around without having to futz with, like, did the, did the computer see it? Did I plug it in? Maybe you don't have a dock for your, for your hard drives. Maybe you don't have two hard drives, you know. All that, those sorts of things go away if you're just dealing with uh, virtual drives. If you're a little more Linux savvy, you can actually create your own uh, either sparse files or basically create your own block devices and just do it right on your laptop. But that's a little more advanced. Well, F allocate is not, I mean, it's a one command. Sure. But I mean, that is definitely if, if the level that you're at is kind of, you know, I like to click the inside the GUI and say, add this, add that. It is mm -hmm. a little bit more of a, it's a, it's a little bit more of a barrier. So, the only thing I would say there is, so a couple things. So if you're just doing it for the purpose of, I want to learn commands, that's great advice, solid advice. Um, in general, I would caution you away from using virtualized drive with ZFS because the VMs will lie to the host. And in ZFS, that can be catastrophic and you can lose data doing that. So if you, it's not that ZFS can't be virtualized. It absolutely can. In fact, I believe IAC Systems has an entire blog article written up about how to virtualize ZFS. And really, it boils down to, I think, mostly turning off caching and, and changing the discard mode. But uh, if, 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 you're, if you're going at it from just a, I just want to learn about it, I think that's great. I think if you want to store data on it, um, I, would, I think I would stick to drives. And as far as, well, if you don't have drive caddies and stuff like that, I would probably solve that problem before I took on the task of, of hosting data. Because, I mean, at some point, I would go into this with the expectation that drives are going to die and the computer is going to die. So I would want to have all my ducks in a row as to how I'm going to deal with that when the, when, the, when, the, when the computer dies. How do you take those drives and how are you going to read the data off of them? Because how, whatever challenge it is today, don't set yourself up to add the pressure of, 
oh, and your wife's leaning on the back of your chair going, hon, when am I going to get those pictures or that recipe or you know whatever it is? Well, that's why I was saying the virtual disks kind of buffer you from that because by the time that you're ready to move out. So first of all, yes, 100%. Uh, ZFS wants to have access to the hardware. Okay, that's the way it was designed. So I'm not. I was not making a production-based mm-hmm. uh, suggestion. Yeah, I was. Learning. I was dovetailing off of what you were saying about don't put your data on anything you're not comfortable with. Mm-hmm. So the way that I would get comfortable with it would be just that. In fact, I I beat up on my laptop. I everything <laughs> I do, I have desktops and servers and stuff all over the place. But I still do what what I said. Like I grab my laptop and I do stupid things to my laptop. I'm I'm really surprised it's lasted seven years so far. So Tr- truthfully, though, it you you know you say stupid things, but the reality is. If doing a quote unquote stupid thing on your laptop teaches you something and you learn that lesson and so when you go into a production environment or even if it's not a quote unquote production environment, it's just something you care about and want to get it right, well, you're gonna I mean those are dollars those are those are frustration dollars and or you know, beat up on your laptop dollars well spent, right? True, but I only have one laptop that I actually would bring with me anywhere. So that's mm-hmm. why I say it's dumb because anything that I do that might render my laptop completely non-functional w- would be a stress-inducing moment. Do you, when you, if you have to reset your laptop up, do you do that by hand? Yeah, because I don't really care much about what's on it. So the laptop is ephemeral like a VM. My data lives somewhere else. So it's really just a matter of installing some packages. Like, like there's a lot uh-huh. of people that tweak this or that and they need an Ansible script. I'm like, honestly, I have a wiki page that I cut and paste out of and it <laughs> takes me five minutes and I'm done. Like, so um, even though I, I work quite heavily with Ansible for work, I just never bothered. So we've completely lost, we've, well, I guess we're still halfway on this topic, but in the interest of just talking a little bit about Deving and learning a little bit. One of the things that I did, so I, 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 I spoke a few weeks ago about this precision, whatever this is, 58 something, 50, 5590, precision 50, or 5550, precision 5550 that I, I've kind of moved into. And one of the things, like you, I treat computers more or less ephemeral. I don't really rely on them, but at the same time, I do like all the tweaks. Like I got, I got stuff set up and I, I've got a way I like it. And so, I started by having an Ansible script that sets all of that up, and that part's been great. But even that has left something to be desired from the standpoint that just signing into everything takes a whole lot of time that I don't really want to spend. So I've been trying something new for the past like two, three weeks, and I'm not sure I'm married to this yet. I'm definitely not recommending that other people do this, but it's kind of working for me. So here's what I did. I have 64 gigs of RAM available on this thing, and I've got enough processing power that I can run VMs comfortably. So I set up a couple different quote-unquote laptops as VMs, my UltraSpeed laptop, my on-air laptop, Asno MindDrip Media laptop. And what I've been doing is I boot into that VM, full screen it, when I'm doing that thing, and there's nothing on the host. The host is just running uh, a hypervisor. And so far, that's actually been really nice. I've done that in the past. Honestly, I got lazy. That's, that's part of the thing. It's just like... There's always something that I have done that that slightly breaks my laptop. And it's always my laptop. My desktop's fine, but because um, that has to work every day, all day. Oh, my, yeah. My laptop is just, it, it'll, I'll cry a little bit if it breaks, but that'll be the end of it. And I'll put it down and go do something else. But 
So I'm always doing something like I broke the internal networking of KVM and I never went back to fix it um, at some point. And so that's just like just little hurdles. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know what it is that I did, but I did something and I just never went back to fix it. So the VM using the VMs kind of went out the window. So, he, so you know, here's the deal, though. So for me, so I, I set all those things up and then I copied the disk images off. So I kind of have like a sterile starting point, so to speak. So if I screwed anything up. I mean, the laptop's easy because there's literally like six packages to get the, the vhost up and running and then sliding the QCuff2 file over, reconnecting it, and I, and I quote unquote start back over and then obviously restoring my data, which is going to happen one way or the other. But largely, most that, that process has kind of been automated. The only thing I haven't really automated, I don't, I haven't automated like sliding the VM and re-importing it with version. I could, I'm just, I don't know, lazy. Yeah, there, there's only so much like there's, there is, um, what do they call it? The rule of diminishing returns, mm, like mm -hmm. that that last ten percent. The reason why Linux doesn't get that last ten percent polish is because it's really a lot of work for yeah. not a ton of payoff. Yep, a hundred percent. And you know the, the difference there, I think, in part is because we we're you know I'm wearing four different hats you know in a week, and so being able to switch between different computing environments has advantages. If all you're doing is one thing, or you have a set set of things to do, then not as valuable, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Our third email comes in from, I'm going to butcher this, but uh, Kailathu. Kailathu writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I listen to your all's show regularly from South Africa. I'm a Linux user who likes self-hosting challenges. I recently started using Proxmox and I've installed Nginx, Nextcloud, PyHole, and WireGuard. Same container that is a Cloudflare dynamic IP updater. My issue is this. When I connect to WireGuard, the PyHole does not allow the device... IP address, but only shows the host IP address. So if there's three devices connecting to WireGuard, they would show as one device, which is, of course, the host where the WireGuard machine is installed to. Is there any way to get around this to show the real IP handed out by the WireGuard interface? Thanks. So first of all, want to know if I'm pronouncing your name right. So if you don't mind following up, I'd be interested to know that. But the short answer to your question is networking principles don't really allow for what you're asking to do. So you kind of got to think about it like this. All the computers on your network, they're all friends, right? They all know each other and they all talk to each other and they go to the same coffee parties and they hang out at the same bars and they all eat dinner together. And so when you ask for somebody else in your network, everybody knows where that guy is and what switch port or what address that guy lives at and we can send data over to him. In every network, in every neighborhood, we have what's known as the gateway of last resort. In other words, I don't know this person. I don't know where this person is. You deal with it. And that's the gateway of last resort, also sometimes known as the router, right? And so this is how internet traffic, your network, your tiny little network is obviously not aware of every server on the wide open internet. But the beauty is you don't have to because you hand off to your router, your router hands off to whoever your ISP is, your ISP hands off to their upstream, so on and so forth until it eventually gets where it needs to go. What you're kind of asking is, hey, can those people out there, can I somehow be aware of them on the inside of the network? And the reason that that isn't going to work is because the people on the inside of your network have no way of talking to those people outside of the network except for their gateway of last resort, which is what they're going to use when somebody isn't in their little local neighborhood. So it's a long way of saying, no, there isn't really a way to get around that. I would. So it depends on what you're trying to do here. If you're just trying to log traffic for security, that sort of thing, 
you can run WireGuard or whatever VPN thing you want to use on something like the gateway, and the gateway can absolutely keep track of what IP addresses it's handing out to the clients that are connecting in, and you can log traffic that way. Now, Steve, you use Pi-hole in maybe a similar way to what our emailer is using, and you find it actually really useful to be able to go into Pi-hole and look at clients. So one of the use cases... So first of all, the the person who wrote in didn't really give us a use case as to why they want to see this, and that that can make a difference. But I was mulling over this question, and I was thinking, well, how do I use Pi-hole? Well, generally what I do is I go in and look to see, like, which one of my hosts are the on the top list of blocked things. And then I would click on them and see, like, well, what's happening? So, for example, today by far and away, my Pixel 4a is like at least 10 times the traffic of everybody else being blocked. And so go in, click on that host and figure out what is it doing? Why is it getting blocked so much? Uh, And that's useful. That would break in the event that everybody was coming over WireGuard because as far as Pi-hole is concerned, WireGuard is the person doing the talking. So yeah, I think that a use case would be uh, Real helpful. Yeah, use case would be really helpful. And like Noah said, I, I would make a simpler analogy and I'd just say, it's like you have three people and one the person in the middle being the wire guard hands something to Noah and says, this came from Steve, no last name. And if Noah wants to return the note to Steve, he doesn't know which Steve it is. So he can't get the reply message back. So he has to give it to the man in the middle and say, please give this back to Steve. And that's essentially what's happening with WireGuard. And that's why Pi-hole doesn't know who's behind it. And WireGuard can't say because there's no way for Pi-hole to know which Steve it is. That's just so the just, way it works. So just to poke at the bear a little bit, because I think it could be kind of fun to explore. So what's the downside to just like, what if we just said, hey, you know what, packet editors? Every time you make a hop, just store that source information so you can reverse course and figure out how you got here. What's the downside to doing that? Well, on a small local network, say um, a wide area network that you control, maybe not so much. On the wider internet, you would end up with so much traffic bogging (laughs) down the internet because essentially the packets that I am sending to make this broadcast right now are probably hitting, even though Noah and I are one state away from each other, they're probably hitting five or six different ISPs to get to each other if we're lucky. Mm-hmm. And then a whole bunch of stuff in between. So if if the if a packet is, let's say, let's be absurd and say it's 100 bytes and each header is five bytes and you end up needing 10 hops to get there, you've almost increased the size of your packet by 50%. And that's not even packet that has any data. If it's bouncing around the world, for example, going to Japan you would have something that would be 20 times the size. And if everybody like 10 X the size of traffic just to handle like the size of the headers, the internet would break. (laughs) Let us know what you're thinking. Let us know if that's helpful or what you would, uh, or, or what your use cases, you know, the other thing that would be helpful. Do you have control of the other side of the network? So you're talking about WireGuard. Is it, you know, WireGuard and it's your instance on one side and then it's like a coffee shop on the other end? Or is it like, you know, you got a lake house or something like that? Because there might be some more options available to you that way too, but we'd, we'd, we just need a little bit more information.
Our last question comes in from the chat room in the Geek Lab. You can tag Marlin. Worry. And Marlin will put the question right in front of our eyes. Sleuth writes in and says, I recently switched over to Proxmox from a hypervisor. From everything I've read, Proxmox doesn't allow me to pass folders through to my VM from the host. So I set up NFS. I'm using Vert.io for the networking between the VMs and the host. My plan is to run all containers and data over the NFS share with several databases. What is the overhead of NFS? Should I be looking at mounting virtual drives differently to avoid NFS read and write heavy applications? Thoughts? So, Steve, what would you do if you were Sleuth? So, if, just to clarify the situation, the host running Proxmox has files on it that we want in the VM. That's what I understood. Is that what you understood? Yes. So, there's a protocol called 9P. Um, If you're using Proxmox for KVM, which I assume you are, 9P will work. What 9P is, is a protocol to mount devices from the host into a specific uh, VM or VMs in general. So inside of the VM, just like you would inside of a normal FS tab, you would put 9P instead of NFS or EXT4 or whatever it is. And that will pass the mounts directly through. This works in Proxmox, or at least it used to. How about I put an asterisk here and said, this used to work. So I would investigate that first because NFS, while it would work, is going to use a lot more network traffic Mm. for something that lives on the same host, which is unnecessary. Now, if you don't have a ton of hosts, like a ton of stuff on there, like you don't have 500 VMs on this host, maybe it's not that big of a deal. But I would would look at the 9P driver and um, see if you can get that working. So he does that and he looks at it a little bit and he goes, yep, you know what? I still want to go NFS or maybe he splits it off and has his own dedicated file server. In that case, this is, I mean, this is essentially what you have, right? You have a V, you have a, a, a hypervisor, you have all of your data sitting on NFS. How would you go about setting that up and how would you go about calculating the throughput? So I guess it depends on, you have to start thinking about where your workload is and what type you have. So for example, you need to split out the type of workload like large files because large files are going to have a different performance profile than something that's moving a lot of smaller files. Okay. So for example, NFS can benefit from a caching server or, or, um, a cache drive, for example, in a ZFS pool, which is what I use, I will use several SSD cache drives for NFS for things that are small. It doesn't make tons of sense to cache like a three gig size file. But if you're talking about Word documents or pictures or things like that, that are a couple of megs, uh, you can absolutely put a caching drive in front of NFS that will help a ton, especially if you've got them on spinning rust. So ultimately you're trying to figure out how do I segregate my data in such a way that it makes sense for the type of data that I'm serving. Now that's, that's the enterprisey answer. Mm-hmm. The, I work at home answer is just do your best to try and have the, the large files and the small files on separate disks. If you've got a question, we want to hear from you live at asknoahshow.com. You can join the program every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. By calling 855-450-6624. That's 855-450-6624. Or you can join 
the Geek Lab. It's an interactive matrix room. You can go over to matrix.org, sign up for a free account there, and join, join pound geek lab colon linuxdelta.com. We'd love to take your feedback, your questions, your thoughts. It's all welcome. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of September 10th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. Linus Torvalds has announced the first Linux 6.6 release candidate. According to StarCounter, the Linux desktop user share has risen above 3%. Tails 5.17 is out. The beta for Linux Mint Debian Edition 6 is now available. And the LibreOffice Foundation has announced that in two weeks, LibreOffice 7.6 has had 1.5 million downloads. And the LibreOffice team also has released the sixth update to version 7.5. The classic game Sid Meier's Alpha Centauri gets an in-development open-source remake, and someone else has made an open-source VR port of Prey for the MetaQuest 2 and Pico 4. In hardware news, German Linux hardware manufacturer Tuxedo Computers announced the availability for pre-order of the third-generation Tuxedo Aura Linux laptop. In security news, a flaw in the Atlas VPN Linux client has been discovered. A patch is on the way. And the usage of blue shell malware spikes by various threat actors to target Windows, Linux, and other operating systems across Korea and Thailand. Blue shell backdoor malware is believed to have been created by a Chinese user and has been active since 2020. It is written in the Go language and is available on GitHub. And in open source AI news, Meta's massive 70 billion parameter Llama 2 model has been outflanked by a newly released 180 billion parameter model called Falcon. The creators claim it is between GPT 3.5 and GPT 4, depending on the evaluation benchmark. Linux full disk encryption backed by TPM. So the trusted platform module or hardware based encryption is what's used on things like the Chromebooks. And it's one of the things that caught news headlines a few months ago or, well, maybe a little bit longer than that, because it's the device that's required for you to run Windows 11. So if you have a Windows 10 box, and you want to upgrade it and you don't have this particular hardware, you're not able to do so. This is going to provide an increased security measure for Linux-based computers. Now, Ubuntu Core has had this technology for a little while, but for the past 15 years, Ubuntu, in order to support full disk encryption, has relied on passphrases and LUX. Now, the way that that works is you enter your passphrase. Your, that passphrase isn't actually what's being used for the encryption key. The encryption key is stored in the in the Lux header. Your passphrase unlocks that encryption key that can be then used to boot your system. And of course, Lux actually supports multiple keys, so you can store them, and you can actually have it set up such that it doesn't even store the key on in the header; it stores it elsewhere. They're going to move to, and it's going to be optional, so you don't have to do this. But they're going to move to the ability to encrypt based on the TPM chip. Now you can still have a passphrase if you like. But the way that it functions right now, when you go to boot your laptop, you have to enter in a decryption key in or well, you have to enter in your passphrase to unlock the decryption key from the header so that you can unlock the encrypted drive and boot from it. In a TPM module, you would have the ability to store that key 
on the TPM chip, so the computer will boot on its own. But where it saves you is in the event that somebody steals your hard disk, the data on it is useless without that specific TPM chip. Now, that can be a, both a good and a bad thing. I absolutely had a client that came to us and said, I am desperate to get this data off of my laptop. There's a death in the family, long story, but it was imperative that we were able to get the, the, the data off of the laptop. It turned out the laptop was a Chromebook and the Chromebook was secured with the TPM chip. And so no matter what we did to it, you would have to somehow attack the TPM chip in order to get access to the data, which is very difficult because the TPM chip will ultimately eventually destroy the key. So this adds a, a, a tremendous amount of security. Like I say, if you like, you can also have a passphrase. One of my first questions was, well, what if they just take the whole computer? So you can still add a passphrase in there if you'd like to. And of course, they're going to retain the ability to do it through Lux with a traditional passphrase. So it's not something you have to do, but TPM-based full disk encryption is coming to Ubuntu. That's kind of exciting. Now, Steve, you obviously have uh, at least your portable machine encrypted. Would you ever consider using TPM? Not really sure. Um, I, I guess I would for something that I'm actually bringing around with me for my desktop. Hmm. I don't even really encrypt the the disk with Lux on my desktop. I do other, like I do GPG encryption and stuff like that, but I'm not sure. I don't, it's never really been something I've gotten really interested in. Like there, there was a surge of encrypted type file systems and stuff like that a couple of years ago where everybody was talking about one, one type or the other. And I poked at it and went, eh, <laughs> you know, like you're going to have to get in and, actually walk out with my desktop good luck with that it's mm -hmm. about 50 pounds so <laughs> but they would have to all they would have to do is get the hard drive right i suppose so um but i guess like there's the point of that is there is something somewhere that is going to be vulnerable in your system and i have just chosen the physical attack vector is not the one that i'm concerned about i'd be interested to hear if you listening to this would be interested in using, or if you have experience using TPM with Linux and how that's gone. Does it work well? Are there, are there shortcomings? I'd be interested to hear. Google has made basically every news source that I follow this week because of their antitrust trial, which is beginning. And this is really fascinating. So, those of us who are, were around in the 90s absolutely remember Microsoft and Netscape Navigator. And the idea was there was an argument to be made that it wasn't fair to Netscape that Microsoft was shipping an operating system preloaded with an Internet browser. And it was incumbent upon the user to know how to go out and First, they'd have to know that Netscape existed. Then they'd have to know how to go out and download it. Then they'd have to know how to install it. And then they'd have to know how to switch it to the default and do all of those things. Netscape made the argument that that was too much and that they shouldn't have to be able to do that. And that's unfair for Microsoft to be able to ship all of this out. So today, the argument goes something along the lines of Google is taking money and paying other organizations to prioritize their search engine on their device. So when you buy an Apple iPhone and the default engine is Google, it's because Google is paying money for Apple to set it as the default 
search engine, as they do on other platforms and other places. The antitrust suit alleges that that is unfair and that that's against, that has unfair uh, practices against competitors. And so this will be interesting to see how this plays out. But here is my initial gut reaction. No company that I am aware of is forced to put Google as their search engine. They choose to put Google as their search engine. And they choose to put Google as their search engine because they believe or their customers believe that Google provides the best results. Now, the suit would argue the reason for that is Google has direct access to all of the data because they have access to all of the data and what people are searching for. Their algorithms are the best tuned because their algorithms are the best tuned. They provide the best results because they provide the best results. People desire them because people desire them. People want them on the device because people want them on the device. Google will pay these places to put their search engine as default and the cycle repeats. And so essentially the question being asked against the court is, should we throw a monkey wrench in that whole cycle? Because I cannot find any company that is forced to put Google as their default search engine. Additionally, I, I to a certain degree, I feel like I'm the person they're talking to. I haven't used Google as my default search engine in 10 years plus. And I, I don't like it's not like I struggle to find things on the Internet every once in a great while. Admittedly, I will be working on some sort of a technical problem and I will, you know, duck, duck, go or search this or search that. And I don't get, find what I'm looking for. Maybe I do a, a search on Reddit and can't find it there. Yeah, every once in a while I'll say, well, you know what, this is kind of an esoteric thing. Let's see what the Googs has. And I'll go over to Google and and run a search there. And sometimes it works. And honestly, it's like 50-50. Sometimes Google returns something. I'm like, oh, shoot. Yeah, there was something there. And then, But the other half of the time, it wasn't any better than what was on DuckDuckGo. It was the same results. So I don't really, I don't wake up in the morning and go, gosh, I just wish the government would step in to help me with this because this is a problem and I can't solve it. Like, I, I Google could cease to exist tomorrow and my life wouldn't really change all that much. What are your thoughts, Steve? Are, do, does this suit interest you? And if so, are you concerned with the anti-competitive nature of Google? Or are you like me and like, eh, I can get along just fine? Well, I think it's interesting. But I think if you extrapolate this to other sectors, like are we suing tire manufacturers because Tesla or ha! Porsche or whomever is putting a specific brand of tire on on the car? Like I'm... I'm not sure. Like to me, yeah. those seem analogous because nobody's forced to. Everybody is making a choice based on what they feel is the best product for their consumer. Now, and and I would argue probably there's some sort of sweetheart deal, even if the tire manufacturers are not paying to have their stuff on the cars. There's probably some sort of sweetheart deal when they lock in with Tesla or whomever that essentially amounts to someone giving. Well, I'd say paying, paying with discounts to uh, make that happen. I am not in favor of regulation in general because like you, people are like, we have had for a long time companies or people that will pay for a billboard ad or, you know, pay to their, their thing front and center in ads or whatever. And okay, so be it. Um, I don't really have a problem with that. I think that the worst case scenario is, hmm, let me rephrase that. I think that the best outcome for the world in general would be the court coming out and saying, you know, uh, 
we're not going to allow any search engine to be the default. The user can get a dialog pop up immediately and then they pick. That I think would be the best for the world because if people are choosing Google because of brand recognition or whatever, you know, it breaks the cycle of the default is king while at the same time maintaining the default because it's likely the default was actually best. Mm-hmm. One other thing that is of note is Google is also making progress on what they're calling Google enhanced ad privacy. And for lack of a, a better way to phrase this, it moves from third party cookies to an API directly to Google. Now, how having a how having a direct API to Google is much better for privacy than having third party cookies is anyone's best guess. Certainly, I couldn't explain it, but I'm interested to hear from people that have experience from this, particularly as I'm told the pop up that is coming up essentially has some sort of obscure, very minimalistic. Hey, this privacy thing is on and you click got it. And that's it. Any thoughts on Google's new API for privacy, Steve? I don't trust anything that Google says is private. <laughs> okay, that's a, that's a good stance on Google's privacy. <laughs> we just don't trust it. So what do you think? Live at AskNoahShow.com. Let me know if you have experience with Google's enhanced ad privacy. Does it work for you? Do you trust anything they say? Or like Steve and I, do you look at it and go, you know, the, the thing that we had, the issue that we had with third-party cookies is they're giving you, Google, the information. No, it does not address my concerns if you just get the information directly. In fact... Adds a real nice icing to the cake to this whole anti-competitive thing, doesn't it now? Music in our ears means we're out of time. I hope you enjoyed the show. We record it every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can join us live at asknowashow.com. Make your voice heard. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. Asknowashow.com. Have a good week. Have a good week.